Welcome to Spinning Out. I'm your host, Josh Robbins. This is a podcast where we talk to artists about their favorite albums. Today on the pod, on the very first episode of the podcast, Spinning Out, which you're currently listening to for the very first time, I'm talking with Eric Grubbs, the author of Post and of the band Caved Mountains. We're talking about Sunday Real Estate's 1994 debut album, Diary, which came out on Sub Pop Records, and we're going to talk about that a lot right now. So here it goes. Hold on to your butts. Wow, first episode and we already got an ad? Hmm, interesting. Hit the ad copy, Sarah. Are you stuck at home and need new records, but it doesn't feel safe to venture out? Or you don't want to support big box stores? Go to lunchboxrecords.com for the best new releases and a whole lot more. If you live in Charlotte, North Carolina, you can do safe pickup. But if you live elsewhere in the United States, they'd be happy to ship to you. Let's take a look. I can pre-order DaBaby, Mountain Goats, Mets, and maybe even that new All Right LP. At checkout, just enter discount code SPINNINGOUT for 10% off. Come on, you love new music, so trust me, it's easy. Thanks for the amazing read, Sarah. Well, now on to the rest of the show. So today we're talking about Sunny Day Real Estate's uh, 1994 album, Diary. I am here with Eric Grubbs, the author of Post. And um, so I guess actually before we get into talking about uh, Sunny Day Real Estate, I wanted to talk a little bit about your book, Post. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, so what what kind of, a basic thing that kind of comes to mind is just like a simple question of, you know, like kind of like you wrote a book, you know, and like not you specifically, that's just like a big undertaking in it. Right. I don't know where you would start. Um, really, it just kind of starts with if you have a really strong idea and you have this commitment to doing it, to starting it and to finishing it, that's, that's really all that you need. Um, I am not a fan of uh, saying the word that you need or saying the phrase you need 10,000 hours to become good at something. Because if you were to tell like a budding writer, like, Hey, you need 10,000 hours to do this. It's like, that's overwhelming. At least, at least for me, when I think of the the number 10,000 hours, I'm like, man, that's, that's way too much. But, and it's daunting. It's, it's just like little steps at a time. And if, if you believe in what you're writing about, then it will kind of guide you through the end. Also, it helps if you have like strong health, health, healthy, non-toxic people in your life, they can help you get the, get to the finish line, you know? Yeah. And you know, the book, if you know, people aren't aware, um, like I mentioned, it's called post. It's a look at the influence of post hardcore uh, from 1985 to 2007. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we have one of the chapters in the book is Sunny Day Real Estate and along yeah. with like Jawbox and Braid and Jawbreaker and Promise Ring and so on. Yeah. Um, 
you know, so was the book, sometimes when I see books like this, was it tied to some sort of like thesis or just for the love of doing it? Um, it was actually in response to hearing about how terrible Andy Greenwald's Nothing Feels Good, Punk Rock Teenagers and Emo was. Um, I had not read it at the time and people were chirping on like message boards in 2004 about it. And I thought, oh, it can't be that bad. Um, Cause it's like, it seemed like this guy spent some time interviewing Jimmy Eat World and Dashboard Confessional and Jeff Rickley from uh, Thursday. Um, and I, I had read Our Band Could Be Your Life and that was huge momentum shaking book for me to read because the way that Azarad wrote it was that he came from the perspective of somebody that was a fan that was active in seeing these bands and, and wanting to research them to the best of his abilities. And I mean, I was very inspired by our band could be your life uh, as far as just the, the tone of voice that Azarad uses in it. And uh, he made me care about bands that I didn't really know about, or frankly didn't care about. And that's, always a good sign of when a book is well written um because it's like i may never understand butthole surfers music (laughs) but as far as their work ethic very admirable and what i tried to do with post is like instead of just like force it on people of like you need to listen to braids frame and canvas or sunny day real estate's diary and i you know it's, it's oh it's such a great record what's the problem with you instead of having that attitude it's like maybe you can relate to uh, playing in a band in high school with one of your best friends you, and, or you want to join your friend's band. They need a bass player, but you show up to the tryout with a guitar and start singing. And then your friend tells you that the band broke up, <laughs> uh, but actually just didn't want to play with you. Um, you know, there's, there's something that's a lot more deeper to be told uh, about what it's like to do things yourself and how like people don't get it or you go on tour and you play to five people in Wyoming. Um, you know, just there's, there was a much deeper kind of story that I wanted to tell. And so i you know, it took three years to really write it and edit it. And then like another year to just, there was a, there was a time that it almost came out, um, I almost had a book deal, but I stepped away from it because what the publisher wanted was not the book that I had pitched to dozens of people that I am, I still have the trust of today. So uh, I, I couldn't go back on my word. This is a, a, a genre that is very much based on like being true and honest and real with people. And it would have been a total heel turn for me if I completely went back on my word with those people and uh, the publisher eventually did put out the book that they wanted to. And I had to self publish my book. And my attitude is that there are two book, two more books about this genre that are out there instead of just one. And so, um, so yeah, that's, I hope that answers your question. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like you mentioned, even just like you tied in, talking about sunny day real estate with it uh, in your chapter on sunny day real estate where you were talking about where Jeremy Enoch, I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, he, uh, where he just brought a guitar yeah. and just started singing in practice and then they just act like they broke up. Yeah. Like even in like, 
I think there's there like so much in like uh, Michael Azarad's book, Our Bank of Your Life. That's like a thing that almost happens. It seems like in everyone's chapter, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. I think that happened with Husker do. Um, yeah. It's like, or it's like maybe a keyboard player or something. It's like somebody and they're like, no, nah, the band's broken up, you know? And then it's <laughs> like, there's this level of passive aggressiveness that you could do up until like probably like 1995 or, you know, whenever the advent of like, instant messenger and really yeah. i guess like modern ideas of you know the internet yeah that you can't do now so there was like you could just be like fans broken up and then someone would just take your word for it you know mm-hmm. instead of they couldn't just call your house or whatnot or <laughs> show i guess they could have showed up and see that you're practicing but that yeah. would only have been like weirdos like myself uh, yeah. before the internet so yeah you would just assume your band was broken up right yeah so, yeah <laughs> So that's, uh, that's like, and also there's like a funny thing, uh, just kind of diving in on Sony day real estate. It makes me kind of think of that Pixies documentary in a yes. way. Yes. Loud, quiet, loud. Yeah. And I don't know, I, I assume based on you writing the chapter, uh, you, so you were able to actually personally interview, uh, people, uh, the members of the band. Uh, for Sunny day. Yes. I interviewed three of them. Okay. Um, there is this one gaping hole of no fresh quotes from Dan Horner. And there are reasons for that. Yeah. Um, at the time, Dan, I think was, at the time I was writing the book, I believe Dan was living in either New Zealand or Australia. He was not accessible to talk to. And the more that I talked to Jeremy Enoch, William Goldsmith, Nate Mendel, which I have a great story about, but I'll, I'll get to that in a sec, uh, as well as Adam Wade, who uh, played in Shudder to Think and later roadied for um, the fire theft. Um, Dan is not presented in a positive light, and this isn't some shocking information, um, but I really had to dispel what actually went on with how the band broke up the first time. And there are ties to why the band broke up the second time. And there are ties to how the band broke up the third time. And as much as Dan Horner comes across as a very lovable, nice guy in playing in a band with him, there have been a lot of really harsh things said about him as soon as, 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 and, and we're talking as late as just a few years ago, William Goldsmith said flat out on the trap set podcast with Joe Wong, is that the reason I'm paraphrasing here, but the reason why Sunday Day Real Estate has broken up is because our guitarist, Dan Horner, is a fucking thief. And like, I mean, it was, as, as somebody that has interviewed William, I was not surprised to hear him say that. William later on, you know, backtracked and said, I'm, I'm, I shouldn't have said that. And like, apparently Jeremy and Dan had a talk about it later. But uh, Dan has has been the reason why that band has broken up three times. Um, it's why Jeff Palmer left the band. Uh, he was the bass player on how it feels to be something on. And so I was not so sure that I wanted to interview Dan because of this. I'm always afraid of the kind of spin that people can put on it of like when you got three people saying things about how, how great he was in the beginning, like inspiring people and getting the band to, together and for writing the, uh, the incredible material, which in my opinion, there are no bad Sunny Day real estate records. Um, but as far as uh, how he was to people and 
uh, it's, it's just very unfortunate to find that out. And I really wanted to dispel, like, you know, a lot of people think like, Oh, well, cause Jeremy Enoch became a born again Christian that broke up the band. It's like that added tension to the band, but that's not the reason why the band broke up. So there are people out there. There's this kind of mindset that people don't want to find out about like who their heroes really are. Um, I'm the kind of person that wants to talk about how grounded people actually are instead of putting people on pedestals. Um, you know, it's, it's like, I want to talk about them as like real people. And that's what Azarad really wanted to do with writing come as you are uh, the story of Nirvana, as well as our band could be your life. Cause I don't want to speak for Michael here. It's, it's just that he wanted to show that Kurt Cobain was a human, not some superhuman or this entity. He was, he had a gift, but he was also a grounded person that had major struggles. And that's really the kind of story that I wanted to tell. And I make no bones about it. Our band, I, you know, I took the, our band could be your life sort of format uh, to tell like a, a big overall story um, that like, if you have no interest in at the drive-in, but love braid, you know, you can just read the braid chapter, you know, you don't, yeah, I'm, yeah. Not, I'm not making people to read the whole book, but if you do read the whole book, you, you can kind of see like, how would we go from uh, rights of spring to Jimmy Eat world's bleed American. Those are kind of the, kind of the, the tent poles of the story. Yeah, that, I mean, I think, when you mentioned that about Michael Azarad, um, like, I, I feel like I agree with you. Like, I think that there should really just be more books of just straight up rip off that format and then go yeah. into like, you know, maybe even more obscure books that are like about like seam or bitch magnet and Bastro or some sort of thing where it's like, it's like, mm -hmm. I want minutia with yeah. that format. You know, it's like, yep. I'm, I, I like the way I, I like the way that you use that in your book to kind of dive into the same things because um i think like sometimes we're we're still like overshadowed with the culture that was given like american hardcore um, yes. and i think that the kind of like honestly some of the whole point the starting point of like doing this podcast was um and I, i'm trying to be more broad about it but since we're kind of talking in this uh, small subset and saying michael azarat a lot was really to kind of pinpoint on that that time frame of music if I could uh, yeah. the kind of drawbacks of that is I think it sort of like gives it would give me a certain type of guest all the time and then sometimes yeah. it's like I might answer my own question eventually right so um, to kind of circle around it it's you know but that that is that is what I want to kind of like know about in music and even the way of just uh, like you said, just you know kind of like not putting these people on a pedestal is what i'm right. what i'm saying like you know growing up in kind of diy and um you know even coming from like a metal background into like fast punk and kind of alt rock i guess um yeah. it was kind of just always like you know either like even if i was on a stage it's like i'm playing in front of my friends or people yes. that will become my friends and this yeah. isn't like kind of breaking down that kind of rock star myth and i feel like american hardcore even being about smaller bands it likes to focus on something that happened and not something that is currently continuing to happen uh-huh that's my tangent of really yes. what I meant to say. seeing know? the line in american hardcore that 
hardcore died in 1985. I'm like, wait, wait, what? So what have I been listening to in the nineties, whether it was H2O or Snapcase? that's not hardcore, you know? And, and I've done I've, I've like looked into, you know, where is Stephen Blush coming from? And he said that he wrote American hardcore in a character voice. He wrote it as hardcore, which was like, hardcore music is the greatest music ever made. And, um, and so many bands uh, that started out in the early 80s, they either broke up or became metal. And, and it's just kind of like, I don't, I don't know, like, this is something I'm really, really thinking about as I'm working on this new book, is that I want to write it from the perspective as a 41-year-old adult, not somebody who is 19 years old and just broke up with my first girlfriend. So I'm going to write all these things about what emo is. You know, I want to give it from the perspective of like being adult and being very mature about it while talking about music that might necessarily, I mean, I can understand if people can see like punk rock or post-hardcore or emo has, you have to only be like of a certain age or mindset to really get into it. It's, it's more about like what's kind of the legacy of, whether you're seeing My Chemical Romance or Dogleg or the Emo DJ Nights. It's, it's like, it's a much more encompassing kind of thing. And what I really, really admire about our band Could Be Your Life and what I tried to do in my book is that if you were too young in the 90s to like say, see Sunny Day Real Estate on 120 Minutes, I want to present it in a way that is like, well, here's, here's what was going on. But I'm not going to be like, too bad you missed out on rock and roll. Yeah, it's over. You know, like that line from uh, yeah. that, that Lester Bang says in uh, Almost Famous. Because like, what I really what I really liked in our band could be your life is that it doesn't come across as, uh, you know, Eric, uh, you were born in '79, and you know, Minor Threat broke up when you were three years old. Too bad you missed out on you know a great rock band. No, he yeah. really explains why Minor Threat was incredible in their day. Yeah, it's silly to think that um, like a form of music just like was better before your time. I mean, and I say that as someone like at my age and I'll find myself like going back, staying in things that are like in the 90s or early yeah. 2000s, um, you know, so it's like I have my own biases about it. But it's like when you mention, you know, like a band like Dogleg, it's like, that's like proof positive that it's still a thing that's alive and in the way that I want to hear it. Like, it's yeah. like, it's like, it's not, you know, it's like, I know that I'm probably like set in my ways about like what I kind of, my, my ears want to hear, you know, something like yeah. dog leg, like mm -hmm. basically indie rock that still has like a punk punk tinge to it. Yeah. But yeah. to say that it was like done better just cause I can point to something in the past is, is such a, silly thing and even like if you think about like the which i know you have thought about it uh with like american hardcore it's like it's like it proposes that these bands even just broke up or went metal when there's some that either just kept going you know or yeah. they became rock bands you know like maybe like tsol but yeah. it's like it's not to say that they just stopped the scene didn't die it might have become more mainstream and so that that kind of like American hardcore idea of the moment might have sort of died, but to kind of look at something and say, 
that it's just done because it's not exactly the way that you sort of like, yeah. you know, falsified it at the moment right. is not great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's why I was really happy that when I was writing my book, I got in touch with a writer in the Chicago area named Brian Peterson. And he put out a book on revelation called burning fight. That was an oral history of many bands. I'm talking 108. Texas is the reason really worth your time to read um, because it's, it's very much presented as is. And it's, it's written with a very mature kind of outlook. And also Brian's a great guy. And so I, I would highly recommend it if, if like you read American hardcore and it's like, it didn't stop in 85. What are you talking about? Yeah. And so like he, he kind of picked up where kind of Stephen Blush checked out. And, um, and, and that's what I'm trying to encourage with like younger people uh, I'm, I'm, that say like saw the emo revival firsthand. There are some writers out there that I would love to see them write books um, like Lior Galil uh, and David Anthony. Um, yeah. Great, great people, very well-informed opinions. And I want them to write their books because like whenever my next book comes out, there's going to be a lot of stuff that's kind of either, you know, overlooked or not talked about as much. And I'm like, well, here's your chance to really stand up and say what you think needs to be in there. Because like, I, I refuse to be like a gatekeeper of like, well, I wrote the only authoritative book on this genre. It's like, no, 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 no. I want informed, well-written books out there. And there are, and there needs to be more. Because like, if I've learned something that I've seen as, as a freelance music writer, it's that there's kind of this less and less of, of a care about, knowing the stories of bands it's like well we have the wikipedia entry what more do you need and it's like well there's there's a much deeper story to be told with bands um whether it's modern baseball or awake but still in bed um hell there might be somebody it's like oh late bloomer they changed my life well i'm like <laughs> well why don't you write about <laughs> how late bloomer you know inspired you so it's it's very much like the what i'm trying to convey that Michael Azarad conveyed in, in our band could be your life is like, do it yourself means you are the only one that can make it happen. And you're the only one that can stop you from making things happen. Yeah. I think, I think probably uh, to insert myself, I think I would at least be happy if like when the eventual book of like Algernon Cadwallader comes out and then they do the little, uh, the tiny paragraph on dogs on acid, yeah, um, that there'll just be like a, a a flyer where late bloomer played with dogs on acid, and then I'd be like, see, like that's uh, how I assume we'll be remembered. And, yeah, um, and I'm happy with that. Let uh, me just you know. throw let me just throw this in there. Um, I've interviewed Peter and Joe for the new book. Oh, great! And boy, is there a really fun tie between Ian Mackay. Darren Walters class at Drexel University and Peter and Joe from Algernon. Yeah. So I look forward to telling that story, but for like, you know, people that say saw Algernon at a basement show and whether or not there were 500 people, there are five people. If your life was changed, speak up because the amount of people that actually want to write a book 
it's much smaller compared to the people that um, say comments on Facebook uh, groups or Reddit. It's just like, if, if you want to tell that story, then you need to tell it. And I mean, like uh, to just reiterate it, it's like for the emo revival stuff, there needs to be books about this because yeah it's i think fascinating. that there definitely does and there needs to be a sort of like a context because like uh and it's it's great that you've interviewed peter he's a good friend of mine uh, and we booked um they headlined a festival we did back in 2012 uh called mm-hmm. treasure fest um and you know and i've been on tour with peter and joe um mm-hmm. too and so like I think like one of the things that I know and we'll switch back to Sunny Day Real Estate and not yeah. make it a Peter Hellman's podcast. Um, but if if people are listening to this in the future when this comes out, definitely check out Dogs on Acid and definitely check check out Yankee Bluff. Um mm-hmm. they, you know, Peter's great new band and I assume people know Hop Along. Uh yes. but I know one of the things that always kind of uh weirded Peter out, like when I was on tour with them is just like I was on tour with Mike Bell and the Movies, uh, a band that Peter and Joe both played in as just like the backing band. Um, and Peter would always kind of find it weird when people would try and even at the time kind of like make him into a celebrity. Right. And I think like, I remember being in the van and he was just like happy that he could be in the van and like Mike Bell drive and him not have any responsibility of it. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it's kind of weird how like people will, kind of like deify even at the time and he just wanted to like have peers you know like he just wanted like me to be his friend or other people just to be his friend and not like you know be a punisher (laughs) yeah yeah like um you know and i think that's that that's where the books can be helpful and just kind of like realizing that these are people you know like i've seen algernon and like you know at silent barn in uh new york city uh brooklyn and just to kind of like see people which is like no stage and just, you know, everyone hanging out. Like these are just my friends, yeah. you know, like, and that's like how I think people, sh- it's kind of hard to think of like sunny day real estate as that, but these were just like someone's friends. And like you were mentioning from the reading the book and other accounts that I've read of sunny day real estate, um, you know, there were a lot of times where they kind of just like played to no one or the account that you wrote about with, where Dan just didn't go to California with them. Yeah. Is the so like, just like, oh, I know how that feels like, or just like, that's just every of my friend's bands. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Like it's just ramshackle story. Yeah. Um, I, I want to share with you about how I talked with Nate, um, yeah. you know, along those lines, because like, at, I mean, Nate's been a member of the Foo Fighters since 1995. And, they have a big machine around that band for practically anything. But William Goldsmith did me a solid and left a message with Nate and said, Hey, talk to this guy. And Nate called me as I was on the way home from the grocery store one night, I had no questions prepared, but he called me and it was right before the Foo Fighters played a show. And we talked for a good 30, 45 minutes. And he was absolutely genuinely just a humble, gracious guy. And when I interviewed him uh, for the Dallas Observer, when they reunited the third time, and this is when the reissues of Diary and LP2 came out, um, he was the same dude, same super nice guy. 
And I was fortunate to talk to him outside of the Granada theater. And if you didn't know he was in one of the biggest rock bands in the world, um, you would just think he's a, a regular guy. And that is something that means so much to me of like, I really admire people that they can be famous, they can be wealthy, but they don't forget where they come from. And to go a little bit further is that part of my full-time job is right. Well, my, my full-time job is writing about memorabilia uh, in the music and entertainment world. And we picked up 800 pieces of flyers from the eighties and nineties. And a couple of these flyers or, or posters, one was for Christ on a crutch and the other one was for brotherhood. And yes. I messaged Nate and he responded like, I'm so happy to see these again. <laughs> and like, it just, but my point is, is like, when you come up through like hardcore, post-hardcore, emo, punk, people don't tend to make light of that. You know, I saw Steve Aoki be interviewed on Jim Adkins podcast and he talked about how like they spoke very fondly of uh, the times that Jimmy World played at Steve, o Steve Aoki's house or talking about Sensefield or Big Wheel Recreation. Now, Steve Aoki is better known for his DJ music and, uh, you know, making thousands of people go up and down to, you know, like really loud music. But he's when he speaks so fondly about where he came from, that is that that demands so much respect to me that um, it seems like the only people that kind of piss on where they came from uh, to a certain degree are certain members of at the drive-in. And um, yeah, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's good to hear. I, I mean, even like seeing something, this is way off topic, but um, like the bass player in old 97s was wearing a crash shirt. Mm -hmm. in uh, one of their live videos and i'm just like oh all right you know it's like you do you see these things that kind of kind of tie people to their punk past yep. that are just sometimes even like that small uh but i know with like steve aoki like one of the rumors that he has like a gorilla biscuits back uh piece tattoo and i don't know if that's true but i'd like to know if it's true uh and i yeah. think one of the things is he uh, he had a label then he bootlegged some like grill yeah. or I think it was Walter stuff like Walter yeah. sings the hits or either yep. the Moon Dog yeah um, and so yeah he definitely has like a tie and some of that kind of like as I get older like thinking about uh, these people that you know aren't so much like would maybe they still think of themselves as punk like I wouldn't say in any sort of way Steve Aoki isn't. Right. But it's like, it kind of makes you feel like you don't have to like be like one way to have kind right. of grown up that way. Yeah. yeah. You, you can, you can grow up, you can maybe have some misgivings about how you were when you were growing up, but the things that help set you on the path to where you are now, um, if it's a positive thing, then why should you, you know, d dismiss it or, or speak ill of it? You know, like skateboarding was a huge, huge thing for me as a kid um, because it, I got my first best friend out of it and that led me to Thrasher magazine and knowing that there's punk rock, uh, hardcore and metal stuff that's not on the radio or MTV at the time. And 
it led to all sorts of things. And then when I started interviewing people for posts and they talked about skateboarding, I'm like, ah, okay. Because like yeah, the way that Emakai put it is that it was a way to redefine your surroundings. And I find that people who have very out of the box thinking and played like punk, hardcore, all this, chances are they skated or still skate. And it's a wonderful way of looking at the world in a different way, not trying to change it, just think about it in a different way in hopes of doing something positive. Yeah, and I think uh, it kind of, when you meet somebody that had that upbringing, be it, you know, punk, hardcore, skateboarding, I think a lot of times they like tie in together. Mm -hmm. Um, It's almost like you can just fall right into like talking to them. Yes. You have like a kind of shared language or, you know, kind of code switching that kind of happens um, based on it. Um, so it's definitely like a unique thing that, you know, is why I think you could just talk to Nate, you know, Mendel. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so, but, you know, it's just like a normal person. But I remember like when I was younger, even the first time I heard about Foo Fighters uh, with like the Learn to Fly video, mm-hmm. um, I didn't even realize at the time the connection to Nirvana. You know, yeah. it just was a band. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's just, you know, it's weird to think about how people, where they came from. And I don't know if I even realized that Nate was in Brotherhood until I bought the Brotherhood record. Yeah. And, uh, he was in that band for like four months. Yeah. I don't think he was in very long. And I don't even know if he's really, but they, they like, they kind of mention him even in like the liner notes kind of. Uh-huh. And like any interviews that I've heard with them, like, it's like, it'll be brought up. And it's funny to think that like, um, like they were a straight edge band. He wasn't straight edge, but they just didn't talk about it. Right. Um, and that's like a unique thing that I don't think people think about, or it might even still happen with straight edge bands and you need a fill in bass player that can tour and you just, you know, maybe don't smoke at the show. <laughs> yeah. Um, some, something that I didn't put in the book, but I found was a really funny little aside, but he told me about how, when he was in brotherhood, that he showed up to a show wearing a no effect shirt. Mm. And w- w- at least one of his bandmates said, no, you're not wearing that shirt. <laughs> yeah. I think my bandmate would still say the same thing to me <laughs> if I showed up in a no effect shirt. Yeah. Um, and, and like hardcore is, is so much of where the members of Sunday Day Real Estate came from, you know, cause it's like, yes, Jeremy was influenced by Shudder to Think and Lungfish as well as U2, John Lennon and the Beatles. Um, but like, you know, William played in fast hardcore bands, uh, Nate and Dan played in hardcore bands, but they, they kind of got to a point where they wanted to do something more. And, you know, what's interesting about the Sunny Day story is that a lot of it was shrouded in mystery throughout the 90s. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I got into Sunny Day because of the Foo Fighters. Practically every article on the Foo Fighters mentioned the name Sunny Day Real Estate. And Sunny Day Real Estate as a band name doesn't sound as like ominous or intense or goofy as say like Ned's Atomic Dust Bin or Earth Crisis, where you kind of get an idea of who these guys are. Sunny Day Real Estate is a very open-ended kind of name as far as like what kind of band sounds like that. And so I happened to know that 
their their reworked version that's on LP2 of the song Eight was on the Batman Forever soundtrack. And I still distinctly remember being at my friend Eric Gensel's house and he had a copy of the Batman Forever soundtrack. Um, you know, it has the offspring covering the damned, Seals Kiss from a Rose, uh, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me by uh, 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 U2. And I asked him, I'm like, Eric, can, can you play this for me? And after hearing it once, I was like, I must, I must own this CD. And so I got LP2 and I saw at Media Play, there's a reference, um, Media Play. <laughs> uh, I was like, oh, there's this other Sunny Day real estate record called Diary? Then I have to get this. And uh, that's, that was 1995. And I have been a huge fan of Sunny Day real estate ever since then. And I've been fortunate to see them twice. I saw them at La Zona Rosa in Austin on the Rising Tide tour. Um, and No Knife opened which was awesome. And then I got to see them in the aforementioned reunion tour with Nate at the Granada theater and jealous sound opened and man, Sunday day was an incredible live band. And William Goldsmith has shared with a lot of people, the demos for what would have become LP five. And it would be really sad if that record never got finished. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. I, I think like when I was thinking about the first time I remember hearing about Sunny Day Real Estate, um, it almost seemed to be like there would be, because kind of like after I came up, like being into whatever kind of epifat kind of stuff, like yeah. a lot of my friends were really into metalcore. So it's like you just go to whatever shows are happening. And yeah. in my hometown in Wilmington, North Carolina, um, it, you just went to metalcore shows. So we yeah. became fans of metalcore. So I always seemed yeah. to be like one member of the band that would probably do like the clean singing parts. They would probably have a Sunny Day Real Estate shirt on. Yeah. You know, it's like you could, ident- you could almost automatically identify who was the clean singer in a metalcore band because of their Sunny Day Real Estate shirt. Yeah. So because of that, um, Specifically, I'm thinking about this band, Glass Casket. Um, I had assumed for a long time that Sunny Day Real Estate was like Bright Eyes, you know. Um, <laughs> and I, I mean, I like I say that as a Bright Eyes fan, yeah. but it was like I thought that's what they sounded like. Mm-hmm. So you know, fast forward like kind of a few years later, finally hearing bits of Diary in LP2, I was like, whoa! I mean, this is like heavier than I would have thought yeah. comparatively to like you know, a bass player wearing, you know, uh, their shirt and flip flops on stage, you know? So it's like, right. you know, it's just like of the time and, um, uh, the same with like cursive, you know, I just thought that that was, it sounded like bright eyes or, you know, kind of more folky kind of thing. Right. Um, you know, so, I mean, that's, that's kind of the end of that tangent, but, um, <laughs> you know, just like you didn't really have any way of, just knowing like now i can be like what does this sound like and i can just listen to it like that was the case not that long ago yeah for for many many years you had to kind of do your research on finding out the stuff that like if the top 40 music is not impacting you then you have to do research and um I mean, I remember what it was like to, to wait weeks for a CD to come in in hopes that I would like it. And I've seen firsthand about how a generation that grew up on downloading stuff on Napster, uh, Scour Exchange, 
Audio Galaxy, they are way more open-minded about a lot of different music than my generation and generations older than me. And like, it feels great to talk to people that have a way more, that started really young with a really open-minded opinion about music in general. And, and it's just kind of like, I look back about how like, there was snobbiness that turned me off. And then unfortunately I become the snob. And so I've been trying to kind of course correct things. And um, there's, I think it's pretty detectable in post about how like I was not really feeling a lot of those mainstream emo bands when I was writing the book. So I was like trying to kind of set the record straight of where, you know, the promise ring or Jimmy world came from. And while I liked some My Chemical Romance, but the fact that I watched Gerard Way give a very straight face interview with MTV about what the Black Parade is, and I was just like shaking my head and you know thinking that, man, this is just the way things are going to be. And, and it also didn't help that I was working at an oldies radio station at the time that um, I imagined what would happen 15, 20 years into the future, and I'd hear a DJ talk about how Jimmy world is a one hit wonder. Cause if you want to speak in yeah. like billboard terms, they're a one hit wonder and then uh, make some joke about email. And I was like, well, I, people got to step up and people got to know, man. Um, and, but it's like, I now see it. I now come from the perspective of like mainstream email is totally fine by me. Um, and there's email revival and it's like, you have both people can, more people can be into my chemical romance and I'm okay with that. And I can't get all upset and want to scream at people about that. Um, you know, you have Dikembe, you have dowsing, you have tiny moving parts into it, over it. Lots of great bands that uh, it's, it's like everything balances out. And, and that's what I'm really trying to do with this next book is just be like, Hey guys, you know, we might've been weirded out by things going mainstream and, people thinking that emo is just what my chemical romance does. But uh, at the end of the day, it's like, we, we got to just like accept that the mainstream version exists, the underground version exists and we can all be in harmony. Yeah. One, one of the things like when I was uh, like, just to compare like two bands, like um, when I think about something like, like Jen Blossoms versus like Dishwalla, like it's like there are differences you know it's like Mm -hmm. you know it's like and i don't know how to like pinpoint the exact differences and it's probably weird reference you know but even thinking about like jimmy world versus christy front drive because it's like like i was like they're similar in a lot of ways but i'm like why didn't christy front drive get as big as like jimmy world but it's like who knows but you know kind of looking back it's like jimmy world wrote like pop hits and like you know they like they get to the hook and everything and christy front drive it's like it's like to not discredit them but it's like i don't think that that was like their vibe you know like they wanted to kind of meander in really cool ways too it's just like a different thing and so sometimes it's like my chemical romance is probably just going kind of for a different thing Mm -hmm. and that's not to say that like that's not a knock on like no knife or something you know it's like it has nothing to do with each other you know Right. Um, and it, and it, it frustrates me a lot of times, like why certain things that I feel like are somewhat interconnected don't get the credit they yeah. deserve. But it's like, why well, wasn't Shudder to Think bigger? But it's like, <laughs> how do you listen to Shudder to Think? Like, it's like, it's not really built in a way that it 
should have been and that's right. fine right you know it's like like i even think like one of the things i guess like kind of backtracking about sunny day real estate like i i get like when i'm listening to it i'm like where did they come up with this? And I think Jeremy Enoch is uh, kind of like a good indication of where it came from. Like, like you were saying, it almost seemed like it's like he already knew what he wanted to do in a band and it was just going to be unabashedly him. Right. And so when you kind of inject that with everything else, like, you know, Nate coming from punk and hardcore and William as well, um and i assume like you know dan was probably in kind of like the same orbit mm-hmm. um you just kind of create that sound but it, it's weird to think because you talk about it in the book um it was just that bands were doing it around the same time and they didn't know right and that's like such a strange thing but i also wonder it's like but why were they doing that and i don't know if you have an answer to that um well i'll put it like this is that news traveled slower than it does now um and when say bands start out with one sound and then they change and they kind of sound like other bands chances are it was because they toured with each other or played shows um because that's what happened with jimmy world in uh, christy front drive if you've ever heard jimmy world's first record the first self-titled record um, there's an influence of J church and rocket from the crypt, but also lag wagon and no effects. Um, but then they got in touch with Christie front drive and that was an influence along with other influences. And, and it's, it's just kind of like influences sort of kind of happen spontaneously, but to just kind of really paint it as like, well, this band inspired this band and then inspired this band. That's a little too simple to put it. Oftentimes it's more of the aesthetic that influences people and something that drives me up the wall of like music critics. You know, I'm somebody that's a music critic and, you know, has written about music for many years is that I'm not a fan of when, a style becomes really popular and a, then along comes a band and they're just seen as a wannabe. Um, most times those bands are not wannabes uh, specifically like um, Candlebox. Yeah. Uh, they were a band that was around for a while when Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden were really hitting, but because of the alternative rock grunge stuff, Candlebox had an opportunity to get signed to Maverick Records and put out a record. But when the record comes out, then it's like, oh, these guys are just wannabes. Another example, Silverchair. Uh, these three, like, they were all like 15, 16 years old at the time. They really liked UMI. They didn't really care for Nirvana. And they really loved Helmet. And so they win this, like, radio station contest to get a demo and then they land a deal with uh, Sony. And so then frog stomp comes out and then Rolling Stones like, Ugh, this is Nirvana in pajamas. And it's like, um, if only that could be that simple, you know, I'm just, I, I just don't like that kind of rock critic shorthand because like bands don't just kind of come out of nowhere. Um, sometimes being in a small town or coming from a small town, you can create something that is not in competition with other bands in the scene. Like the Flaming Lips are so bizarre 
But because of the fact that they came from a small town in Oklahoma, that helped in, inform their sound. Yes, they were influenced by the butthole surfers, but they also were influenced by the Beach Boys and the Beatles. But here they are in this small town and they can create music. And in the case of Sunny Day, here they are in Seattle and they have a sound that is more in line with like what bands from Washington, D.C. were sounding like. Because like Sub Pop has never been a grunge only label, but Sub Pop for the longest time was seen as the grunge label. And so the fact that Sunny Day Real Estate did not fit in with their time and, and their label mates um, you know, it's like, you got to re remember the context of the day. It's like Sunny Day Real Estate might have played these incredible shows that only five people were at, but that's because like a lot of people just didn't know who they were and just didn't care. Yeah. And I also think like, if you look at night, well, you mentioned it in the book um, as well. Um, but, you know, if you think about like 1994 and, you know, the death of Kurt Cobain, yeah. And, you know, Sunday Day Real Estate isn't a grunge band, um, yeah. but I also kind of think directly with like Sub Pop, like my friend Lee, uh, he was in, he, or he's in the band Lee Baines and Glorifiers, and they were on Sub Pop. Mm -hmm. And I think like with what Lee is doing, I'm not sure if people that are tuned into Sub Pop would be looking for something like Lee. And that's, I think that, you know, just to kind of like put it into a context, I think that that could have been happening with Sunny Day Real Estate. It's like if Sub Pop have spent, had spent time in the overall mainstream perception was grunge, then they weren't necessarily going to buy Sunny Day Real Estate from Sub Pop and, and Sunny Day Real Estate just needed the time to kind of find its people. Yeah, which seems like they wouldn't have to do with the label like Sub Pop, but you know they might have been better at home with whatever kind of label. Even like Revelation Records, because if you think about them in terms of like Texas, the reason, yeah, you know they're kind of doing you know some of the same things, right. uh, but Sub Pop might have been you know I don't think it hurt. I think it helps, but you know, sure, it might have kind of hurt at the time in some yeah. weird ways. Yeah, uh, I'm just glad that Diary and LP2 sounds so incredible. Like they were, they were recorded really well. They were mixed well, mastered. Interesting thing is that Sunday Day Real Estate tried to record Diary once before they recorded it. And Nate Mandel told me that when they were doing the reissue, they considered re, like issuing for the first time their first attempt at recording diary and he said it was so bad <laughs> i i can i feel like i can imagine what it sounded like yeah like yeah. i think it would be like it's like vocals it'd probably be vocals really high on top very mm -hmm. metallic guitars almost no bass but like yeah. a very trebly bass and then just like this wash of drums yeah you know would have been the mix given the time frame on a smaller label what it would sound like yeah you know? Yeah, Sub Pop had the Sub Pop had the resources. Uh, Brad Wood recorded it. Yeah, and um, or is it Casey Rice? I, mean, I looked it up. It, it is Brad Wood, and I'm not sure if the other person you mentioned they might have been an engineer, but um, right. and I looked at like what Brad Wood had uh, produced around the time and up into the present, um, mm -hmm. and that I think that was super beneficial to the sound of Diary. Yeah. Yeah, it was Brad Wood's studio 
and Casey Rice worked on it. And Casey Rice would later, not that long after, work with the Promise Ring. And since you've read Post, you know the story, but Promise Ring records 30 Degrees Everywhere. And there are a lot of parts where they're all like, man, should I redo that? And he's like, no, 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 it's fine. It's punk. Don't worry about it. And so like they listened to the uh, like the rough mixes of it on the way back home. And they were all like, we're not so sure if this record is really that great. But, you know, Sunny Day Real Estate had had a major impact kind of in a small sort of swell. It did influence Mineral. It did influence the Promise Ring as well as many other bands that say don't get talked about in retrospectives, but it's like they were around, but as time went on their, uh, their stature became much bigger. I mean, I I can imagine there are a lot of people like myself that um, were, were just Foo Fighters fans or Nirvana fans. And it's like, is real estate? Oh, okay, cool. And um, you know, it's it's just like Sunday Day Real Estate. It's they just continue to grow in stature. But when that initial run happened, they were just kind of like this a sad indie rock band. I didn't know that I was listening to an emo band until Blink One Eighty Two said on One Hundred and Twenty Minutes, "Oh, emo!" and and I started investigating it. And some friends of mine who were really into pop punk, they hated emo, <laughs> and they thought yeah. it was just like anticlimactic, really jazzy tear-inducing music and when i listened to jimmy world's version of new religion on the duran duran tribute uh, album i was like man this sounds a lot like uh the smashing pumpkin song soma and i love that stuff and so i i was just kind of by default i'd, I'd been listening to emo for years and i didn't know it but um yeah retrospectives are are kind of interesting i'm I, something that I'm still like fighting with people about. I'm joking saying fighting, but uh hate to break it to everybody, but Weezer was not called an emo band in the nineties. Pinkerton was seen as a commercial failure. Um, so when people are all like, Oh, Weezer, they're an emo band and Pinkerton's one of the best emo records of all time. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. I think the dividing line is, is like a weird thing. Like, um, and it's, I, I don't want to say, I, I think in some ways, uh, I think it's kind of maybe even held back like my band personally is just like, we will not choose which side we want to exist on. Like, it's like, you know, I, you know, it's like, it's like the, the split between being like, I guess like an alt rock band versus like an emo band, or I guess they'll say indie versus emo is usually the split. Yeah. Sometimes it's like when you get to something like sunny day real estate, it's like, we're splitting hairs here. (laughs) Like this is like, you know, and I think kind of both sides will, you know, maybe accept it, but it's like some things are just firmly viewed as emo and some things are like indie rock. And that just gets to be like such an annoying conversation, you know? Yeah. And also I've had to take the perspective of like, when you meet a lot of people that have very, you know, defined opinions about this kind of stuff most people have never heard of these bands yeah (laughs) you know it's it's like if if i went to the convenience store just down the street from where me and my wife live i could ask like five people in there the two people that own the store and like three other people that are shopping there hey have you ever heard of sunny day real estate most are going to say no um and so it's and or even like 
maybe they know who Taylor Swift is. And it's like music is a very important thing for most people in their lives. But as far as people having definitive opinions about it, it's, it's not as big as you would think, or at least I, I thought. Um, and so that's, that's been something that's been a journey for me to understand in my twenties and thirties. Cause it's like, um, I remember seeing braid play Nashville five years ago with beach slang. And here I am thinking, man, this place is going to be packed and braid's going to be incredible. 40 people showed up. Yeah. And you know, when you see people write about these bands, either in comment sections or articles, he makes it sound like these bands were huge, you know, like they sold out like uh, 1100 copies of the first pressing of the record and they're so big. And so, like here I had drove I had driven 10 hours to Nashville to go see the braid guys and good to catch up with them and hang out. And then to see them play to 40 people was like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I also think sometimes it's like, I always think like, why did the, like, it's like, that's like such a story that happens so many times. I'm like, why did the, why did it get booked at like that specific venue? Yeah. Um, you know, but that, that's always like hard to tell. You know, I would assume a promoter would hope that yeah. the place was full full up. But I, I remember I keep going back to like my own stories, but we were in like Columbus, Ohio, and we played a venue and I don't know, it was like somewhat of the same thing. It was like a Monday night and it was right after our last record came out. And then at the end of the show, not crazy well attended, and yeah. uh the guy was just one of the kids there was just like Touche Amore was the last band I saw here. Like, yeah. and I'm like, why are you playing here? And I'm like, I don't know how, you know, it's like, I don't know when, you know, I'm not from Ohio. Like I have no way of knowing how big this venue is when it got booked. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, but it's like sometimes like those articles that got probably written about sunny day real estate at like the time would almost be a detriment to the band, you know, yeah. or even like, sometimes the agents would have probably been like, yeah, they can fill up this thousand cap place because he can get a certain amount of money. And so he can get a percentage. Um, I assume that, you know, they're doing fine. And I, I, I doubt that Sunday Day real estate, if they played now would have that 40 person problem. Right. You know, but, <laughs> yeah. but, you know, but it's taken considerably like a long time past the original life of the band for them to really get to that point. So they've, you know, even though they haven't been active all these years, they've put in all that work with like other projects like the fire theft and just kind of, uh, you can't really collect checks on just existing throughout the right. years, you know, on the impact that you've had, you know, those are probably a really hard thing with the band. Or I don't even know, I, maybe that's sometimes why like maybe Dan is hard to work with, you know, it's like you can't bring that nostalgia to the bank to cash right so it doesn't really help william goldsmith yeah you know? yeah yeah um william is uh he's doing well he's uh he's got a new band called assertion but there was there's kind of the scary point a couple of years ago where he almost had to sell his main drum kit because uh, he'd run into some financial issues and a drummer that i know um who lived in dallas for a number of years now lives in east texas named Stephen Osicki plays in a band called Caterpillars. Um, he helped raise money. So William didn't have to sell his drum kit and they made it, they made a lot of money for William and William was just immensely grateful. 
Um, cause like William's married with children and works, works a full-time job. And, you know, it's, it's like the mystery about how much money you can make off of playing music is it depends on the person. Um, just because you played in the Foo Fighters and Sunny Day Real Estate doesn't mean that, you know, you can just coast off royalties for the rest of your life. Um, it, it's, it's nice if you can, but you all, but I think you, you gotta understand that these people are human and like that. I, I frankly love talking to musicians that I really admire that, that do work, you know, kind of regular jobs because for the longest time I thought regular jobs are just like the enemy. Um, and, but in, in reality, it's, it's kind of like, oh, so it's it, going back to the whole thing of like, you're a human too. You're not just like this beaming, like angel <laughs> that, yeah. you know, oh, I never have to worry about money for the rest of my life. And all my bills will be paid for life because of playing music. It's, um, it's, it's just kind of like most, most people that you know, that play music, maybe still have to hold down a job as soon as they get home from tour. And there's nothing wrong with it. Making money is not a bad thing, folks. <laughs> yeah. When, when we first, we kind of made a decision to start touring more that, you know, we can't do right now. Right. Um, but before that I worked in finance and at times, honestly, like kind of working a regular job may, was easier to kind of like, you know, pay for your band's things or t-shirts or whatever you kind of had to do than there yeah. were, then there's like this weird split, you know, it's like when we started touring more full time uh, between late bloomer and my other band, all right, it really makes it hard to try and figure out like, you know, like how you're going to pay rent, but also like, can I invest a little bit of money into recording or merch, you know, that I would have been able to. So it's like a weird trade-off that you get that sometimes like, you know, even if you work full time, you can almost like do better for your band in a way. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like it's yeah. like you can invest more into it because it, then it becomes like a hobby because right. the gulf to being able to make a living off of just playing music is like basically impossible. Right. And the people that I know that do it just essentially have moved into someone's closet. Mm -hmm. you know, or they, or they, or they moved everything into their parents' house um, or storage, you know, really cheap storage facility. I mean, I play in a band with a couple of guys that I, one of them I've known since college and a couple of other guys that I've known almost as long. And we do this band as a serious hobby. Um, and it's, it's not just like we, we get together and just play cover songs, which is actually how we originally got together to play this one-off show, but we enjoyed playing so much that we kept playing and writing our own material and having the full-time jobs basically pays for us to do what we want to do. And, um, my wife and I don't have children, but everybody else in the band does have children at least at least one kid. And instead of poker night, uh, going hunting on the weekend or playing golf for many, many hours during the week or, or on the weekend, we do this band. And, and it's just kind of like, this is the best, this is like the happiest I've ever been playing in a band because I'm not having to worry about being in competition with other people and, um, and, and not worrying about like, am I making enough money from playing a show so I can pay for groceries next week? I'm not thinking about that kind of stuff. And, um, 
you know, there, there, there are people that want to do the starving artist thing. You know, want, just want to go for broke and, you know, just move into a co-op house or something. And there's, a, I, I don't get me wrong. There is nothing wrong with that. Um, it's just, if, if you come from growing up with a lot of stability uh, and you've never been on tour, basically things like wondering, am I going to eat today or can I take a shower? Those are questions that you have <laughs> when yeah. you go on tour. And it's like, not everybody has that kind of mindset about like, yeah, I'm going to do that. So having stability doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to make crappy music. And it doesn't mean that you're going to make great music if this is the only thing that you want to do in your life. Um, and it's, it's just more a matter of like... Bob Nana put it best to me was that what success is, is that if you're happy doing whatever you're doing and, um, and I, I consider Bob a very successful person, even though that probably the biggest selling braid record has, you know, not even cleared a hundred thousand copies sold. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, kind of, I guess going back to like William Goldsmith, like, you know, sometimes like I think about like, I think when I was younger and I thought about the position that he was in with like Foo Fighters, um, yeah. when I was younger, I feel like I would have just been like the same decision he made. Just like, you know, fuck this. Like, I'm not gonna just be like a fill-in guy essentially. Right. But now as I've gotten older, I kind of go like, well, you know, like, and I don't, and I don't know if like he regrets that any, and it's kind of, it's good if he doesn't. Cause I think that'd be a hard thing yeah. to kind of live with, but, I think at in, at my age I would be you know and this is a lot of hindsight I'd be like I think I could I think I could just let Dave Grohl record all the drum parts and me fill in on tour you know yeah yeah, so, yeah it has, it's been no problem for Taylor I mean because there's nothing left to lose Dave plays drums on half of that record yeah. um, but I think Taylor was the one that like stepped aside and be like I you know I can't handle all these songs what happened with William was that. The, the amount of touring really burned him out. And when he was around all these people that he just did not see eye to eye with whatsoever, it made him miserable. And then um, Gil Norton is notorious for asking for a lot of takes from drummers. And from what William can recall is that he wanted to play drums on the record Dave wanted to have William play drums on the whole record, but Gil Norton just wasn't getting what he wanted. And so the word was, is that William is credited for playing drums on two songs, the slower part of up in arms and then see you. Um, and, or, or there's, he's credited for two songs, but he, but I've heard that he was actually playing, he played on a third song, but I don't know if that's like official news or, or whatever, but it, when it got to the point of like, he was playing them to the best of his ability. And, and also he didn't like the song monkey wrench. He thought it was way too poppy. And I was like, I don't like this direction. And so when he found out that Dave had re-recorded almost all of the drum tracks, that's when William's like, I'm done. I'm out of this band. And, um, you know, there are demos that I think you can hear on YouTube of him playing, of William playing drums to Monkey Ridge. And it has a much different feel than the one that we all know. So 
I mean, it's like, I think William did the right thing for himself, but sure. In hindsight, it could be like, Oh man, you know? <laughs> yeah. Cause I mean, I think he definitely has like the talent to do it. And you know, Dave Grohl is just Dave Grohl, you know, it's like, yeah. it's like, um, you know, I, th- I think like, and probably Dave Grohl would say, yes, I would do this now. But you know, at the time I feel like it should have been like, I want you in the band, but I will be recording drums because that's just the person I am, you know? And then that might've been like something at the point that William would have been like, do I want that or not? And that's, that's a different conversation than being replaced. You know, it's like if I got someone in the band to record, re-record some of my bass tracks because they're better, that's different than them just doing it because they want to. Right. (laughs) So it's, you know, it's, it's tough. And I think that there might've just been kind of two young people not knowing how to communicate even, you know, it's like, I think maybe now Dave Grohl, no, it's kind of, it's like, you kind of like don't really make a villain out of, or I don't personally, I think back then I was like, man, Dave Grohl sounds like a jerk, but I think it's just, you have a certain way you want to do it. (laughs) Someone's going to be the enemy. Right. I remember as a matter of fact, like right behind me is the stack of modern drummer issues. I was a subscriber in the nineties and um, you know, I, I, I used to have a bunch of magazines, but I threw most of them out, but I held on to all my modern drummers and something that I frequently saw that terrified me was reading about how drummers were replaced in the studio and something that is talked about a lot in come as you are the story of Nirvana is the fact that aside from Dale Crover, the biggest complaint about all the drummers prior to Dave Grohl was that they didn't hit hard enough. And so I would hear about like drummers that just couldn't keep time. So they were replaced in the studio, um, whether it's Chuck Biscuits or Samantha or, or, or Patty Schmel being replaced yeah. by Michael Beinhorn, by Dean Castronovo on the respective uh, white light, white heat, white trash by social distortion or celebrity skin by whole. Um, and, and hearing about how like, you know, drummers were kicked out of the band while they were in the studio and, you know, they got a session drummer. It happened with Oasis. Um, and uh, I, I was just absolutely terrified of getting thrown out of a band. So I, I then and there just started hitting insanely hard as a drummer. And it's honestly, it, the wake up call was that a number of years ago, I got fired from a band for playing too loud um, because I was too aggressive. And uh, then in my current band, I, we have made the decision that our music works best if we have like noticeable uh, sound dynamics, not just like kind of quiet and then really loud. It's kind of like, no, you know, kind of, we're going to play all, all this part on clean on guitar. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I actually switch off on bass and drums with, uh, with my bandmate Willis. And we are very self-conscious about like, not playing too loud, but when when the time is right to really rock out, then do it. I mean, I'm proud to say that on on this record that we're going to be putting out on October 2nd is that I do double kick at, at, in the outro of this one song, not too dissimilar from uh, Lars Ulrich's Fade to Black as far as kind of the, the, the tempo and all this. And I was just like, I'm going to just try and do it. And nobody in the band said, no, you can't do that. So, <laughs> yeah. so, it's, so it's stuff like that. Yeah, and I guess like, you know, we'd be, you know, I want to mention your band by name, yeah. Caved Mountains, and y'all yeah. have 
a new record come out, you said in October? Yeah, October 2nd. It's a self-titled, uh, self-funded uh, kind of thing. We, we launched a Kickstarter a handful of days ago, and we have met its goal, which we're very, very happy about. Um, and we still have a number of days left on it, and more people are contributing. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's really cool to be in bands for so many years. And the one band that I'm genuinely super proud of and that we're recording is that we're putting out stuff that people actually do want to hear, not just our friends and family. Um, so yeah, um, you know, we, we have a style that is very much like we're playing the kind of music that we like to play. Um, one of the guys is really into local H Sloan, smashing pumpkins and the grateful dead. Then other guys are really, really into Nirvana and, um, and annual Noah's by the trail of dead. And when the songs that I play drums on, if you hear like little kind of like lots of ride bell hits, that's coming straight from listening to Appleseed cast, Jimmy world, sunny day real estate. And, uh, and also like a little bit of deaf heaven as well. So, so it's, it's just very much uh, a band that I'm really happy to be playing in. And, uh, you know, I just, I just, think about like what are the roots of what got me into playing music in the first place but playing it as a 41 year old that's not embarrassing or yeah I, I, I think like like thinking back to like that idea of like hitting hard and even like you mentioned like patty schemmel because that's what was running through my head it's yeah. so silly to think that well i guess it kind of goes back to it's like i wish these producers or labels or even the bands themselves had more adult this conversations but i'm saying that is much older than them than they were at that point yeah. um so it's it's like it's like you still needed a drummer when you went on tour you know it's like if the conversation could have been better you know it's like maybe like because it's like what kind of happened to patty schemmel after it was kicked out it's just so it's like it, it might have been avoided uh had people just had better conversations around it because it probably yeah. happens a lot now in these kind of bands without just people making like a big stink about it you know it's like you're still part of like late bloomer tours with a different drummer because our drummer runs a record store and he has a, a kid and it's like it's a different experience like mm -hmm. you know but it's like scott will always be our drummer you right. know it's like i think it's like if william goldsmith or patty schimmel it's like you know, it's like if, if they would have been made to feel like it's like they weren't getting replaced, it's just stupid because Patty Schimmel's amazing. And so is like William Goldsmith. Like everyone doesn't have to be Dave Grohl or that, you know, uh, White Snake drummer that filled in for Patty Schimmel, whoever it was. I think it was someone from like Coverdale Band or something. Um, Dean Castronovo is best known as like he played for Journey for a long, long okay. time. Those um, are fashion played guys. Yeah, he uh, he he was a studio drummer for many many years. Played in a number of bands in the '80s. He played in Bad English, um, and I say this as a huge Dean Castronovo fan. Yeah. Um, and but it's like at the same time, you want a band to be like who they really are. So why are you hiring session drummers? But that all said, most like of the '60s pop hits that weren't by the Beatles or the Rolling Stones were played by the same backing group. Um, whether it's Motown or um, stuff that was recorded by the Wrecking Crew, those are all the same players. But yeah, and even with like Rolling Stones, like some certain tracks are just like Muscles, you know, Muscle Shoals band. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the Wrecking Crew 
playing on like uh, you can't always get what you want. You know, it's it's like yeah. it's a tradition that happened, but I don't know. There was never a point at that time where I don't think I'm, I can't think of the drummer in Rolling Stones' name. Charlie Watts. Uh, yes. Uh, Charlie Watts like would have felt that he was not going to be in the band anymore. You know, like, that's <laughs> it's such a silly thing now that it's like, you know, but it does happen. So it's like, you know, and it, it, it just seems so silly. And I think like a whole generation of drummers didn't need to be Dave Grohl. You know? Right. Like, that's like, I think, I think that you kind of mentioned with like, everyone felt like they had to play loud. It was like either you had to play super loud or almost not at all. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like, it's like, I think Dave Grohl is a great drummer, you know, just like, it's like John Bottom is a great drummer, but you don't have to be John Bottom. You know? Right. <laughs> like, right. and I don't know if a lot of kids know that still to, to death. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, like, I, I interviewed Dale Crover last year and I told him about how like I was afraid of getting fired from a band because I wasn't hitting as hard as Dave Grohl or Dale. And he told me about how like he's had all these back issues <laughs> from hitting so hard. And so I'm kind of like, all right, maybe it's a good thing to play more like Glenn Kochi from, uh, from Wilco instead of just being like full on all the time because like, what what my band has discovered when we recorded this self-titled record, we had recorded an EP before, but it's like, we need to really write these songs at a quieter level um, to get like more nuance and, and really get vocal harmonies down and, and, and get a better vibe so that when we do go into um, a rehearsal space where we can be as loud as possible, we have a better understanding of what the material is. So... Yeah, I mean, that's been like a big thing coming up on this new record that we're working on. Like, it's, it's you know, I hope that like younger musicians, maybe that hopefully they get to that conversation quicker, but it is a hard thing to like push against. Like, yeah. you know, it's like, I, you know, I, I, as, I like Wilco, but it's like, I never thought I'd necessarily be in a band that sounds like them. So to sort of approach songs in the same way is mm -hmm. like a thing that I've always pushed against, but it's like, it's a great way to, you know, kind of think about the harmony or think about like, like if you can kind of play something quieter at a point when it does get loud, it even feels like way louder. It's like kind of the Black Sabbath approach. It's like if something's really quiet and haunting, when it goes to be heavy, it's like really hits you, yeah. um, you know, is I guess what we're talking around. Uh, yeah. Real Estate does a lot too um and i yeah. think they do a lot better as they progress as a band past diary yeah i i think of that song shadows that intro has got this really beautiful um intro riff but then when william kicks in it's like it's on you know and and sunny day real estate uh they were a band that could put a lot of like melancholy stuff but it didn't like slow you down or think you have to be like really depressed to like this music you know if you've listened to the washed up emo podcast tom mullen i think rightfully says pretty frequently that you don't have to be sad to like this kind of music and i mean i've been really happy listening to post-hardcore emo like i was I was feeling all sorts of amazing feelings when I saw Jawbreaker and Jawbox play in the same summer last year, you know, not thinking, you know, about like what, 
savory is really all about or what uh, Deer's, you know, Bad Scene, Everyone's Fault is really all about. It's like this music brings a lot of joy, um, but, uh, it, but, but it's, it's just kind of like if it's a different kind of, for lack of a better word, a different kind of emotion that is talked about that's not full-on happy or full-on sad. Uh, it's just very much this strong release that you can get uh, by playing minor chords, augmented chords, diminished chords, instead of just straight on, you know, like power chords in a major key. And uh, in, in Sunday Day Real Estate, they really knew how to 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 think about that. Because like yesterday in in preparing for talking with you, I was I listened to the blankets for uh, blankets for stairs. And how like, that's a really atonal song, but then there's this part where there are these incredible harmonies and it's like, that's like the super melodic part. And it's like, I'm, that was a reminder of how in- incredible this band is. So, yeah. yeah. So, so Josh, thanks for having me on and uh, always happy to talk more about this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, if, if people want to find me on social media, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, E-R-I-C underscore G-R-U-B-B-S and Instagram, Eric J. Grubbs. So. Thank you for throwing that in because yeah. I would have forgotten to ask you. So, yes. Uh, so definitely, yeah, check out those books and check out all those links. Yeah. Yeah. So, so thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Josh. Quick note. I want you to check something out. Are you wanting to learn guitar or bass? Or maybe you just want to level up? Well, you're in luck. So do this. Open up Instagram and type in Phil Pucci Teaches Guitar. So that's Phil, P-H-I-L, P-U-C-C-I, Teaches Guitar. Or just go to I Teach Guitar underscore. He's teaching virtual classes, so go check that out right now. It's never too late to learn guitar. So do it. Right now. Thanks for listening to the very first episode of Spinning Out, the podcast you're, well, currently listening to. Uh, Probably not necessary to reset since this isn't radio, but here we are. So make sure you rate, review, and subscribe, but ultimately just tell your friends about this podcast. Everything helps right now. So thanks for listening to this episode, and before we leave, sincerely appreciate Sarah Blumenthal for doing the producing and editing and taking out some of the um, um, ums on this, and also wanted to give a big shout out to Pretty Maddie for the awesome theme. So on that note, see you next week, and hit the theme, Maddie.